Next up on Everything Thought Leadership is Vinnie Merchandani, an acclaimed author, analyst, advisor, and blogger known throughout the software and services space as a progressive thinker who sees technology-enabled innovations for the rest of us. Our conversation covers Vinny's thinking on the ways and means of developing quality thought leadership, the importance of preserving an independent voice, how and where Vinny applies case examples and colorful storytelling and researching and writing his books and blogs. Vinny also fills us in on the quest for expert interviews to reinforce and expand his independent thinking on innovation and the challenges and opportunities tech, product, and services vendors face when developing and sharing their thought leadership. Vinny's books and blogs are considered must-reads by tech industry executives worldwide in search of a clear-eyed, fact-based storytelling. For example, his new Florence New Renaissance blog has cataloged thousands of emerging products and services before they appeared on other pundits' radar. His books such as Silicon Collar, The New Technology Elite, and The New Polymath have unearthed practical and applied thinking that gives producers and consumers of technology new insights in solving their biggest business and IT challenges. They like that he takes a measured tone that balances the virtues of emerging tech with the vices that others obsess over, and yet he rarely candy coats things. Despite being a self-acclaimed optimist, Vinny is big on pointing out the challenges of achieving better living through tech. He does this by conducting a wide swath of expert interviews and documenting his views with colorful case examples that definitively show the strengths and weaknesses of every emerging technology that he covers. Vinny's straight talk approach is refreshing. It likely originates from his days as a tech consultant at Price Waterhouse and an industry analyst at Gartner, where he chronicled the rise of enterprise software and the globalization of the IT services industry. Interestingly, some of Vinny's best POVs are drawn from his experience advising large companies on technology strategy and purchasing decisions, pivoting around the cloud, automation, artificial intelligence, and predictive analytics. I've known Vinny for more years than either of us will admit to. He's the perfect person to dissect how and where thought leadership works in the tech space. He's also well positioned to opine on the issues that prevent vendors worldwide from sharing their problem-solving expertise with decision makers hungry for solutions to their thorniest business challenges. Don't miss Vinny's take on what it means to be a thought leader and to work with, channel, and share the thought leadership of experts across the business technology space. Whether you are a thought leader, a thought leadership program manager, or a rabid consumer of thought leadership, you're bound to learn something new. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. You can find out more about Boudet TLP at BoudetTLP.com. Vinny, thank you for joining us today on Everything Thought Leadership. Alan, that was the longest introduction I've ever had. So thank you very much. Very flattering. Thank you. Well, you, you've earned every word of it, and uh, you're admired by many, so I wanted to do it justice. So why don't we dive right in? You know, as I said in my setup, you're an independent thinker, maybe one more than anyone else I've ever really met in the technology space. It seems that everybody typically has a, an ax to grind or a, a point of view to power through. So how did you develop this ability to think outside of the lines? You know, so Alan, uh, when I started Deal Architect, it's been about 20 years now. It was more of a balancing out the portfolio of likely business, right? So I said, I've been an analyst, I'll continue to be an analyst, but I also need to make sure there's consulting and part of the mix. I also need to start publishing more. I'd written quite a bit at Gartner, right? So mixing those three 
has allowed me to get multiple perspectives, not always in sync. So they challenge each other, right? When I'm writing a book, I'll sometimes bring in my analyst perspective and go, this sounds way too optimistic, right? Or when I'm an analyst, I'll go, you're being too tough. You know, let, let a person tell their story, right? So it's kind of balances out. Um, and, you know, that's that's where I guess the independence comes from. I can yeah. challenge where I need to. And then at other points, I challenge myself. It's like, whether you're being too hard. So so where are you most comfortable playing? Is it blogging? Is it advising? Is it authoring books? Is it some combination thereof? Well, you know, it's funny. I said I, I wanted a balance from an economic perspective. And that's exactly how it's worked out. Some years, the advisory work is, is takes up more hours. Other times, a couple of books take up more time. I think I'm comfortable in all of those. And the important thing is they feed each other, right? It's symbiotic, they feed each other. So that's been, you know, so a lot of the New Florence blogs end up becoming you know, kind of nuggets for uh, book ideas, or certainly chapters in books, right? So, the advisory work quite often I'll bring in my, they call it radical advice. They usually want much more practical, but you know, I'll bring in stuff from my, from my blogs, from my books and say, Hey, this is what I've seen that others do. So it, it, yeah. I think I'm comfortable at, at all of the above. So long as it pays the bills. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but how did you navigate that transition from technology consultant and later analyst to you know, author and and thought leader in your in your own right. You know, it, it, it's funny when I was thinking about this. I went back to a, a blog I wrote. I have a passion series on the New Florence blog where people write about their interests, right? Hobbies, charities, et cetera, et cetera. And when I wrote mine, I thought about international travel. I've done a lot of global travel and so on. And I came back, came down to, I really am a storyteller. I'm a story whisperer. I've had so many people in case studies, in my video series, just open up, right? And so I had to think, I said, where did I learn to that skill? Because Gardner didn't teach me that. Gardner taught me how to present technology terms and technology presentations. I, I, I don't know, but I've become much a much better listener in the last 20 years. And that shows in the various stories that I'm able to bring out of people. That's very important in storytelling, listening as well as speaking. So you've been a keen observer of technology innovation for the last few decades. What separates leaders from the followers, at least from a thought leadership perspective, when it comes to technology innovation? You know, I would, uh, honestly, I would say when it comes to technology vendors, they don't have enough thought leadership. They tend to look at the analyst firms and grab onto magic quadrant acronyms and say, we're good at this, right? they actually hurt themselves because they don't allow their customers to speak out for them. They don't allow their own smart people to think up new acronyms, new terms, new thoughts, and so on. So I would say, honestly, the the few that allow that become automatic leaders just because the others don't do enough of that. So that's a kind of a default point of view. I, I wish they were much more independent thinking in that in that perspective tend to follow trends rather than lead trends. And as you know, without leadership, you really have to lead. Does that hold true in products as well as services? Is there any differentiation here in your mind? I would say products actually lack. You know, at least in consultants, you'll find a few independent guys who will you know, grab onto a new 
idea in a book or whatever, they'll, they'll bring out more in their presentations and so on. In product, it tends to be very, very, what's the category I'm going after and what, what can I talk about that? They, they tend to be very disciplined about that, which actually makes them boring. And, and they tend to also have this uh, not invented here syndrome. You know, they suffer from that a bit. You know, if, if if they haven't brought it up or they don't bring it to market, it's not worth anything, particularly if a rival has beaten them to the punch. Very, very frustrating because, you know, I, I'm like, guys, nothing wrong with you quoting an, a competitor, right? Nothing wrong with you giving credit to a competitor, even if it's false praise, right? But no, they're like, talk about us, Vinny. Don't talk about them. I mean, it's almost jealousy at the point, you know. <laughs> What about in the services space? I mean, I worked in the services space for 15 years and I saw it firsthand. It's a lot of me tooism, a lot of unwillingness to really go beyond the obvious. Uh, very often um, an introspective view of thought leadership. What can we do rather than what are the problems that clients are trying to solve and where does our expertise help them to advance their business? Alan, it's gotten worse in that you know, if you look at the recent book that I wrote, came about because as SAP and I were talking, we said, you know, it's amazing how in the last three or four years, we've had shocks from COVID, we've had shocks from Ukraine, we've had shocks from the climate change urgency, we've had shocks from global transformations that companies have been going through. These are major shocks to industries. No industry has escaped untouched, right? And yet we see so many people just going to them and talking about horizontal back office processes. I, I like to say business as usual circa 2019 mm -hmm. is a recipe for mediocrity at this point. So to be able to do that, you've got to be, you've got to be confident that you're moving, you're getting into new paths. You've got to be confident that, that there's an opportunity there. A lot of people keep chasing what they've done in the past. There's no way you're going to leave that. I, I would say, I would say in services, Little less than products, but not much, much less. I mean, services—they can talk a good game, but you know they don't—they're not leading the market and saying, "Okay, how did retail change in the last three years? How's the energy sector changing now that we are so focused on green stuff?" A lot of the leadership isn't coming from them. It's coming from—I'm finding more and more from practitioners within the clients, which is not a good position to be in from a consulting firm perspective. So when, when you look at the, the thought leadership coming out of the, the technology space, space, both the product companies as well as the services companies, is there any evidence that you see that they've come to grips with the fact that they need to do a better job here? Or are they working more intensely in terms of researching or, or collaborating with acknowledged experts to really get their points of view out there and sharpen them as well as focus on the unique selling and expertise proposition that they have? I think there are, there are pockets within each firm that are struggling to get their voices out. So at SAP, I found that. I found a group that it gets them into industries. And I thought it was just a handful of people. For every industry, they have an IBU leader that turned out to be probably the best analyst on the industry I can find. I mean, they have a really deep knowledge of auto and CPG and every other industry, right? So that group of 50 or 60 people is just phenomenal in terms of new markets, how existing markets are changing and so on. I struggle to find that in many other vendors. Architectural uh, leaders, you know, what's going on with blockchain, very comfortable talking about. If you talk to them about trends in industries and so on, 
it, it, it shrivels pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've seen that firsthand. Vinny is correct when he says the tech industry struggles to share its thought leadership. In our experience, we find that tech firms are challenged to codify and express their best and brightest at the right time and place and in a language that is understandable and contextually relevant. What we've seen is that product and services vendors often view thought leadership as a one-shot deal developed by a coterie of SMEs and evangelized by too few sales, marketing, and biz dev folks to make the investment worthwhile. What we see is thought leadership masquerading as sales and marketing collateral, not to demonstrate the firm's deep expertise and documented problem-solving skills and capabilities. That's sad since our recent research reveals that thought leadership truly sways how customers buy high-ticket services and products, especially technology-related ones. When we surveyed consumers of tech products, 45% said they used thought leadership from these companies before deciding which firm to hire. The percentage was even higher in IT services. 55% said they read thought leadership content from providers before deciding which ones to use. And 31% said they use thought leadership content that they receive from providers because it's extremely valuable. However, only 27% of the IT services firms we polled believe it is extremely important for them to be viewed as thought leaders to customers. Go figure, what a missed opportunity. To be seen as partners of choice, tech and IT services firms need to be seen as thought leaders with unique business challenge-solving capabilities. But they need to do so with authenticity, honesty, and a good deal of empathy. Our advice to tech and IT services companies, lose the bravado. Don't worry about appearing invulnerable. Do more research to truly dissect and understand the customer's problem and to develop viable solutions. Stop speaking in jargon and code words that come off as BS or elude the comprehension of all but the most tech-savvy buyer. And don't set yourself up to be seen as the one and only solution because that is not defendable and is unlikely to be true. Lastly, show customers and prospects in your thought leadership that you truly understand the problem and have a proven solution. Think beyond the tactical and the transparently transactional. If applied collectively, these measures will ensure that your thought leadership is taken seriously by all, clients, prospects, the media, and the analyst community. Moreover, it will have the impact your firm desires, reinforcing your eminence and advancing progress against your business goals. I'm, I'm wondering also, when you advise companies on IT strategy and vendor selection, and you've done so you know, very well over the last few decades, what role does the thought leadership that they generate and share in the marketplace play in your recommendations? Do you take that into consideration? I would if the client wants that as an evaluation factor, right? Quite often in evaluations, it tends to be tactical and says, hey, Benny, help us pick the best uh, CRM solution or help you pick the best integrator for this project, right? Often they find the thought leadership is distracting when it comes to those narrow evaluation points they want to focus on. But if they're looking for strategy, right? If they're saying, hey, Benny, I want to look at what automation is going to go in the next three, four years. Absolutely. Absolutely. They will be, I mean, they seek me out and say, talking to who should we be reading and so on. So I think it's a, it's a, a lot of the work that clients do tends to be fairly tactical, tends to be fairly project specific. For that, I find that if I try to tell them, hey, this one's done this innovation, whatever, they'll say, hey, thanks, but let's focus on what we need for the next six months. So, so if they're looking for strategy and you've uh, been able to discern what a potential partner could bring 
by looking at their thought leadership, where they've gone fairly deep, where they're writing from the outside in, where they're bringing in case examples to show not only the art of the possible, but what they've actually delivered, the outcomes that are achievable through their approach, then that probably helps you to, you know, with more confidence, make a decision or a recommendation on this vendor could be a partner of choice here. Absolutely. And, you know, the analyst cam video series I started three years ago, that has allowed me to tell, tell vendors, hey, I want you to come present on these industries and trends you are seeing, okay? And so they'll force them to bring out a industry-specific person who can talk only in that area, right? That has helped me coach vendors to, guys, don't just talk gen generic. Come down and talk about this specific area, what trends you're seeing, what showcase customers you have, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's forcing them to become more comfortable talking about it. Like I said, they have pockets, but they're hidden within, within most of the vendors. My of them, you know, practice in a in a uh, presentation to me on some of those, you know, thoughts. I also bring in authors. I bring in, you know, it's meant to be a guys. Video is a wonderful way for you to present to me, and just pretend that you're not presenting to the world. I'll showcase it to the world. And I'm sure their customers are clamoring for this kind of insight as well. You know, I think in today's world. They want to make, they don't have a lot of leeway to make the wrong decision. They need to make the right decision. And sometimes it's looking at a variety of perspectives and being, you know, assured that uh, what it is that they're pitching you actually holds water in the marketplace and has been verified and reinforced by others who have a, a similar perspective. Well, you would you would think so, right? Depending yeah. on the level of the executive, absolutely they, they should invest that time. Quite often they're so busy in the tactical stuff. They find thought leadership a bit of a distraction. Yeah, and if they're looking for content around that type of material, they're probably looking for product brochures and collateral that shows the anatomical way a product or a service actually works, rather than what's the thinking behind it and what the potential outcomes uh, either you know delivered in the real world or aspire to. And product brochures are never going to give you that, of course. You're right. I mean, case, use cases. Um, you know, well-done surveys and so on do a much better job of that. So in your mind, what constitutes solid thought leadership? Is it fact-based points of view? Is it good case examples? Is it strong writing, poignantly to stories told, or all of the above? All of the above, I would say. You know, there are times when somebody comes up with a brilliant new, you know, Michael Hammer re-engineering, right? New approach to something that has been done, shocking people into doing things differently, right? Uh, on the other hand, you have search for excellence type stuff, right? Where it was a survey of 50 or 60, say, very well-run companies, right? So I, I think there are different ways of bringing that out. You can learn from the past. You can challenge the past. Both of those are, are good ways to you know, push for thought leadership. And you do all of that in your books, which I've always found to be really good because you know, very often people get so caught up in, in current affairs that they don't realize the historical uh, consequence and sometimes unintended consequence of things that came before us. Uh, and, you know, while if we, we can always look to the future, you know, the future is unevenly distributed. So not everybody's going to benefit from it. So the question is how you put it in perspective and tailor it so it's meaningful to the audience. But Alan, you know, you and I both know, you know, people like the Reader's Digest version. Uh, you know, some people will tell me, Vinny, I wish you would have put everything in 
50 bullets uh, at the end of the, <laughs> the book. In fact, yeah. Really, I want to I want to leave you with some imagination so you can dig what I've given, and 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 you know take that to the next level. I don't want to just give you a packaged answer, right? So. I've always you know, admired your passion for for telling great stories. We're full of context, full of history, full of facts, some that you've uncovered, some that you cite from other sources. And uh, you tell a complete story. It's sad that a lot of times people can't don't have the attention span for that full story. they just they just want the summation. It, you know it's because we have all time is a is a limited commodity for all of us, right? I'll tell you a funny story. And I wrote this in the storytelling uh, uh, passion blog that I wrote. Uh, Doug Burgum, who is now president of uh, governor of South Dakota, he was president, CEO of uh, Great Plains Software that Microsoft acquired. Great Plains used to have a user conference called Stampede in North Dakota, right? In keeping with the tradition in Plains states. And um, so it was a pain to get to. I mean, God, you had to fly into Minneapolis, four-hour car journey. I just, just you paid your price to get there. Okay, and he made a keynote presentation. Just, I was just absolutely enthralled by it. Nothing to do with his product. Nothing to do with his company. Nothing to do with his financials. It was about how John Harrison, an English clockmaker, won the prize for helping the government. Uh, he invented how to calculate longitudes. I mean, it was clearly important for navigation back then, okay? but the way he went about doing it and how much more sophisticated scientists failed at that, it was enthralling. He spent a whole hour on that. Guy next to me was a fairly seasoned journalist and I could see he was fidgety all hour long. And then when the thing finished, he just let go. He says, what a waste of an hour. I've come all this way and the guy didn't give me a morsel on his product. <laughs> and I was like, I completely understand what you're saying. I found it enthralling, right? So I, you know, I mean, how do you how do you criticize him for not getting what he wanted? Yeah. Well that segues into another question I had for you, which was a few years ago you told me you pick up kernels of great ideas at analyst meetings and customer events for your blogs and your books. Can you discuss your approach there? How do you take these uh, tidbits and convert them into thought leadership for whatever vehicle you're building? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate in my analyst role. I get invited to a number of the software vendors and some of the outsourcing firm events. Um, I, and, you know, when I go there, I don't just go to listen. I look at the logistics of the event. I'll take time to walk around the town that I'm at, right? So, there's a whole bunch, and, and most of them have one or two good speakers who talk about whatever, inspirational stuff or athletes or whatever, right? And so it, it I, I try to soak it all in and, you know, a couple of nuggets of, of innovation, motivation, um, optimism come from every one of those. I, I've, been, I've been very fortunate to, I mean, it takes investment, right? Flying these days is not much fun. It takes investment, but I usually pick up something from every one of them. You you, you talked about this a little bit, but I'd like to develop it a little bit more. I, I love the way in a number of your books, if not all of your books, that you really allow your interview subjects to tell their stories rather than intervening and trying to tell the story for them. So So why do you do it? And do you think it limits or expands your storytelling abilities? 
I think we all have stories, right? When you think in technology, what, what's a story? There's no villain, there's no hero. Actually, the heroes and villains in technology in space, right? You and I have been in heated negotiations. We call each other much worse than villains, right? So I look at every person I interview and I go, there's a story in this person. They have not been coached to tell it. They speak in jargon, they speak in acronyms and so on, right? So I give them plenty of time and I go, let's take what you're trying to present. Let's present a use case. Talk about, you know, talk about something innovative that a couple of customers went, aha, this is this is fantastic, right? So I try to bring them, let them talk about almost with pride at something that either a product changed or a project changed for a client, for a customer, et cetera, right? And then I kind of have to, you have to win their trust. I tell them, everything I video, you'll get a copy of. Every transcript of that, you'll get a copy of. So that's already two, two, two ways for you to check, hey, Vinny, I didn't mean to say this, or I'll get fired if you <laughs> put this in the book or whatever, right? And then before the book is finalized, I'll send them the portion of the interview that ended up becoming part of the book or parts of the book. And usually that is very, very helpful. Having said that, Alan, one out of every 20 or 30 case studies, including the book, will drop out during the course of the book. Usually, a preferred happens up front, but a couple of times it happened at very, very late in the process. That's very, you know, that's tough to recover from when it's that late in the, in the cycle. But for various reasons, people will change their minds, and I honor that, right? So mm-hmm. it's a question of building trust and saying, look, this is not meant to ambush you. This is not meant to hurt your company. Just share with pride what, let's talk about what you're proud about. Yeah, I remember clearly as if it was yesterday when you interviewed the then CEO of Cognizant, Francisco D'Souza, when I was running thought leadership at Cognizant. And you got Frank to open up on some things. I mean, I can't say I know him really well, but I knew him well enough to pretty much know his family history and his progression as a, as a CEO in the industry, as an executive really in the industry. And he told you an interesting story about his dad whose paintings actually are, are uh, displayed at the United Nations. And he had so much pride, he was beaming with joy telling you that story. And I had never heard that. It really gave me a whole different perspective on Frank that I never had. And you know, after that, he introduced me to his dad because I interviewed his dad for one of the books. So, you know, I mean, look, as an analyst, people hate my guts, right? But when I, when I switch on to an author mode, I am much more about, tell me stories. You know, and the other thing that kind of goes hand in glove with the storytelling is I I love the case examples in most of your work. You know, and these are really heady innovation topics. And sometimes it's hard to get really good examples. But to me, they really express in real world terms, you know, how technology can be applied, what the potential outcomes or are the real outcomes. Is it really challenging to get people to, to speak to you and time and place where, you know, proprietary thinking is something that they want to preserve. Their IP is not something they want to give away and they don't want to give up potential competitive advantage. So I I don't know how you do it, but you get people to really tell you what's going on behind the scenes. You know, so I'll give you two examples and hope I don't get in trouble for being naming names, but I interviewed an executive at Costco for a book. It was about machine learning applied to demand forecasting and so on. I mean, really, really innovative stuff they were doing. And he opened up and he told, told me all they were trying, right? And I said, hey, look, 
please don't go to your PR yet. When we are ready, then go. Because if you go up front, they'll throw all kinds of obstacles. Because not a problem. So I finally say, hey, look, I'm ready to have you go to PR. And he goes, why should I go to PR? I said, don't you need their approval before I publish this? And he tells me, he says, Vinny, if at my level, they don't trust me to speak carefully about the company, I really don't deserve my job. And I was like, wow, I wish every executive would that open, right? That, so that, that was one where clearly I got his trust and he spoke up and so on. The other extreme is I wrote a case study on Corning, their Gorilla Glass that became part of the iPhone. Um, you know, I, I cold called them and the PR said, sure, we'll be happy to talk to you about Gorilla Glass. But one ground rule they said was, we will talk about the devices we want to talk about. Please don't push us and say, tell us about this or tell us about that. I said, that's fine. Acceptable uh, ground rule, right? So around the time my book was coming out, Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs came out. And there's a really funny three or four pages where Jobs was told about Gorilla Glass and told to call Corning and say, hey, look, see if they have they could make enough for you know mass production for you, right? So he cold called the Corning headquarters. <laughs> and sure enough, they said, you know, who are you? And they go, I'm I'm the CEO of Apple. And they go, Well, we don't let anyone just talk to the CEO of Corning. We'll get back to you. So Jobs was actually pretty upset. He's like, you know, typical East Coast company. He, he told somebody, he says, screw them, right? Well, a CEO of Corning actually called back Apple's switchboard and they said, who are you, right? And so he said, well, I'm CEO of Corning. And they go, well, we don't let anyone talk to Mr. Jobs. You need to fax us your request. Then we decide if we can call you. So all this is in the book, right? So I called Corning, my PR uh, um, contact, and I go, it's in the public domain. You guys are doing work with Apple. She goes, with who? I go, the iPhone, Apple. She goes, what, what are you talking about? She completely pretended as if they were still not doing business with them. <laughs> so, you know, two extremes. <laughs> That's a great story. Why don't we move over to your most recent book, Business as Unusual with SAP. It covers critical business technology imperatives, such as the circular economy and sustainability, through lifelong health and resilient supply chains, just to name a few. How was it collaborating with SAP? I mean, SAP to me is a company that's always been on the bleeding edge, but has never really done a good job of telling its stories or expressing its thought leadership. And I can only imagine, considering you have some history with them, it must have been a very interesting mating dance to get uh, the relationship started and uh, optimized to the fullest. Surprisingly, because I found that group of 50 that I talked about a minute ago, surprisingly, easy is the wrong word, but surprisingly fluent. The, what SAP has is a lot of industry depth. And for each industry, they have one or two or three domain leaders. Like in energy, they have some, someone who can talk about renewables, somebody who can talk about hydrogen economy, someone who can talk about nuclear, somebody who can talk about oil and gas, right? So these are very, very knowledgeable domain experts. Not only do they know the sector, but they also have the customer relationships. SAP has 400,000 customers. So every major mid, mid and large company is, is one of their customers, right? So working with these this group of 50, 
and then them introducing me to customers, then introducing me to the right partners and all that made it so much easier. Now, th that's where the power of SAP is in the in the industry knowledge. I mean, Alan, if you could be able to talk to any of those 50 and then go and talk to some of the vertical analysts and Gartner or whatever, you'll come away going, these guys are more knowledgeable. They're not allowed to create magic quadrants and so on, but nobody would believe that if SAP created it. But, but you know, they, they are actually very, very fluent in industry trends and so on. And so what we ended up doing was, and the, the starting point was, you know, we've had four major shocks, right? I mentioned four major shocks, COVID, Ukraine, climate change urgency, and big digital transformations. These have transformed industries. How come we're not talking about the big changes that have happened? So we put it, put it down into eight mega trends, right? So you mentioned circular economy, and that's one of them. You know, how are people rethinking product design to not be as wasteful? How are they rethinking manufacturing? So it's recycling in mind, right? How are they doing the recycling? How they're supporting refurbishment and so on? All that becomes an enterprise-wide focus from a circular economy perspective. Another one is sustainable energy, right? How do we move to low-carbon energy and do it in a realistic way? We're pushing a little too much on renewables, and we've seen the problem we've had this year. They just cannot deliver more than 30 or 40% of any modern economy's needs. So how do we bring in hydrogen? How do we bring in carbon capture maybe and continue to use fossils? So, you know, big, big thoughts around each one of these grants, lifelong health around medicine, everything as a service, how business models are changing, how product companies are learning to do what's called servitization, where they are not selling products, but they're selling outcomes, right? So it's services in the form of an outcome. So Rolls-Royce, for example, doesn't sell aircraft engines anymore. They sell power by the hour, right? So a lot of megatrends, eight megatrends, covering about 40 or 50 industries in that. A lot of very, very deep thinkers in Bain, Accenture, and so on we interviewed. It was great to bring out thought leadership, not just at SAP, but also its partners and its customers. Like I think customers, Alan, some of them, Eastman, uh, one of the executives there, he spent a whole hour explaining to me mass balance, balancing in the chemical industry, how they're doing molecular recycling and so on. I mean, this is thought leadership. Nobody else is doing it, right? By the fact that they can explain it makes them thought leaders in, you know, as people look at recycling options beyond what we have today. Very, very invigorating project. You know, the, the the challenge, of course, is SAP is a product company, right? So they like to talk features, they like to talk in acronyms and so on. You gotta, you gotta keep that, but then build around it, talk in use cases. And you know, it took, took some effort. And in some cases, the domain experts didn't agree with each other. So <laughs> I had to be a little bit of an up. I, I ran an arbitration when, when that required, but overall, really, really fantastic experience. Well, why don't we end on this note? So what do you think the future of thought leadership is in the business technology space? Is it a nice to have, must have for B2B organizations that want to win in the marketplace of ideas? I would say right now it's a nice to have just because they're so product centric, so feature function specific. So, you know, in, in the consulting world, so project centric, it's not coming out enough. Alan, it's your challenge and mine bring out more storytellers, more storytellers, 
encourage people to talk more in terms of outcomes and you know bring out the what made you really proud rather than I, I build um, you know six million hours right we got to change the metrics that we want people to showcase you and I do a lot more other people need to bring out the pride more in terms of what made your client really really delighted what delighted your client what made your customer really really productive let's talk in outcomes positive outcomes. Lavinia, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Speak to you soon. Alan, thank you again. And thank you again for that flattering, um, too long introduction. Happy New Year. And let's, let's go make some more storytellers out there. There you have it from Vinny Merchandani, the anointed king of wow when it comes to spotting and pining on tech-infused innovation. Vinny made clear that tech and IT services firms need to look beyond the tactical and embrace the strategic if they want to develop quality thought leadership. But he noted that most firms are still missing the boat and see thought leadership as a nice to have, not a must have. And that's despite the fact that their clients and prospects are clamoring for more. He emphasized that both sectors could benefit from having better thought leadership storytelling, as well as case examples that highlight the business outcomes their products and services deliver. Case examples can be difficult to get on the record, as Vinny explains. However, they make a huge difference in documenting trends, verifying outcomes, and influencing key influencers and decision makers. Vinny excels as a thought leader because he marries his accumulated experience as a consultant and tech analyst with his work advising big companies on technology decisions. He bolsters his thinking with interviews of top experts across the board on technology-powered innovations of all sizes, shapes, and flavors. All of these insights inform and shape his manifold books and blogs. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd left a like and share this episode with your colleagues. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. You can find out more about Bidet TLP at bidettlp.com.